Commentary is for general information purposes only. Clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. I always like to say there, you know, we've heard this before. There's a reason the, um, uh, sorry, there's a reason the, um, oh my God, I forgot my train of thought. Twenty twenty one was a tough year for the bond markets. Most broad fixed income indices finished the year in the red. Higher risk bonds, such as high yield, were some of the lone bright spots. But that was last year, and we are unlikely to see that same environment in twenty twenty two. With the expectation of rate hikes by the U.S. Federal Reserve and Bank of Canada, and rising rates across the yield curve, it will likely be another challenging year. But investors need to remember why they hold fixed income in their portfolios. Former college football coach Paul Bear Bryant said it best: "Offense sells tickets, defense wins championships." It's important to remember your defense in your portfolio. In today's episode of Investments Unplugged, we are joined by Dan Janis and Tom Goggins from the Manulife Strategic Income Team. They're going to talk to us about how they're positioning their portfolio to help clients best play defense. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm the host, Kevin Headland, co-chief investment strategist at Manual Life Investment Management. With me, as always, is my colleague, Mark Ania, my other co-chief investment strategist. And today we are proud and happy and excited to be joined by uh, two colleagues and two friends, Dan Janis, Senior Portfolio Manager and Lead Manager for the Manual Life Strategic Income Fund, and Tom Goggins, Senior Portfolio Manager and member of the Strategic Income Team. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And everybody, Happy New Year. And hopefully we can continue to do our job for everybody. So just to kick off, I think we're going to get right into the market environment. I think that's what, what people care about the most right now. Inflation on the tip of everyone's tongue. What do you think about inflation and perhaps uh, talk about how the Fed is is likely going to um, react to the current inflationary environment? Uh, I think the key thing here is we've had some supply shocks over the past probably two years instigated from COVID. We've also had a change uh, probably from the power of wages from the company to the individual with this work from home thought process and also on the lower to middle income wages going up. You know, that could be through potentially some of the, you know, settlements on the low to middle end, which has has gravitated higher. So let's look at inflation first from the supply shock. We think that that will linger on, but it will eventually go away because the supply situations will unfold and change. Let's put a time frame on it for about a year. Now let's look at the wage side, which I think probably is going to be a little bit more sticky. Companies have to understand, do they have a hybrid model, work from home and go into work, or do they work from home? And we have to see if that you know sticks because there's going to be competition for those people to work from home from other companies, which should, if there's a skill level, raise some of those wages. So we have to deal with that. That's going to be sticky as we go forward. As we understand the top performers, you know, and the on the higher end are always going to do well and they'll get their you know outstanding raises above inflation. So we understand that. But I think the key is the lower to middle end is rising up. Eventually, uh, they will get some real wage gains, which they've missed probably for the past 25 years. 
Okay, so that's we think that that's going to linger on. Now, what is the Fed trying to do about this? Well, again, what he's trying to do is he talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. Now is implementing policy where there's four rate hikes. It seems to be built into the price. I think after each rate hike, which will probably start in March and go quarterly, uh, he will assess from you know the data that they get, is this accelerating or is this manageable? And I think after each meeting and after each data set, he will talk about that and again, preempt that to make sure there's no surprise, okay? So I think that they're on a path of four if they change, they will telegraph, telegraph, telegraph. And if they're more aggressive, they'll say that. If they're less aggressive, they'll say that. So I think that's the path that they think. Now, inflation, as we know, is in the five-ish to seven-ish, could come down to maybe three and a half to four. It's still above their 2% level. So that's probably a multi-year situation that maybe it gravitates on average back down to two and a half. And we'll see the verbiage related to that. So I think that's where we stand on inflation uh, from the U.S. perspective. What about the uh, the Bank of Canada? You know, I think we got almost five rate hikes priced in, a bit more hawkish tone. Uh, do they move as fast expected? What I think there is you have a commodity, the oil situation, which is pop, which is a positive. You had positive migration into Canada, which, you know, you had 400,000 people coming into Canada, which is 380,000 in the U.S., you know, 10 times smaller, but you had, you know, almost the same. That puts a lot of pressure on housing, and, and your immigration policy, to me, is of higher quality, so the jobs are more higher end. So you're going to get those people spending more, whether they need housing, et cetera. That's going to put some pressure on the, the housing markets and maybe on the goods markets, et cetera. So people have to understand that that's going to bring some wage pressure up. Also, uh, I think the Bank of Canada is prudent to do that because your current account and trade are improving uh, and you're going to get some tailwinds from the U.S. markets and the global markets as the world improves and as COVID cases go down. So I think that's a, a real positive and Canada should be a little bit more aggressive because you do have some so wage presses and inflation pressure. So you could have a, we'll talk later about this, but you could have a currency help together with rates. But I think you have a, a five-ish built in right now. So that wouldn't be a surprise for us. Danny, you're talking about the migration upwards for the lower to middle income wages. And interesting enough, we're seeing it in Canada. Ontario saw a minimum wage increase. I know in the states, 21 of 52 of your states are actually increasing their minimum wage. I look at that as a positive, especially when 75% of your economy is consumption-based. So you have this backdrop in inflation, and it sounds like that you are constructive for the general global economy and obviously the North American economy, and that bodes well for credit in this type of environment. I'll, I'll let Tommy talk about credit, but I just wanted to highlight two things. When you have a better wage profile, you have a better balance sheet for the consumer. We've seen strong balance sheets. It's probably one to two trillion sitting on the side, similar in Canada. So that should be a tailwind if there's some consumer spending going forward. As far as credit situations, Tommy, you can talk about you know what's going on in credit, but I think that's a positive because now you have a better wage profile, a better savings rate, and then there's some spending that could, could really impact and be an insulator as rates go up. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Uh, yeah, I think the big theme that we want to express in the overall portfolio is we want to substitute credit risk 
for interest rate risk. As rates go up, that naturally takes the price of high quality bonds like Canadian governments down. But selective credit opportunities really benefit. Bank loans, for example, when rates go up, you know, bank loans do well. High quality, high yield, like double Bs, because they're going to be upgrade candidates or go from high yield to investment grade. Similarly, we find opportunities in lower rated investment grade securities that are in triple B minus that are also rating um, opportunity candidates that get upgraded. And then, you know, we have the flexibility in our strategy, unlike anybody else, I think, in Canada, where we can own preferred uh, mandatory convertibles, convertible bonds, um, a number of different hybrid instruments. And in this environment, it really puts a premium on security selection. And I think that that's really where we shine in this type of environment. Yeah, you, you mentioned security selection. I, I think it's key. And we often talk about a stock picker's market, um, but in the bond side and the fixing up side, it's important this is an issuer's picker's market. You look at high yield credit right now, spreads are at all time tights, investment grade uh, spreads are in the top you know, 10 percentile of history. Um, so picking the right names is not about just blindly throwing money at an asset class. It's picking the right names in those asset classes. A good example would be uh, copper. And so Danny is our macro big picture thinker. And then we have Kisu, who's a senior portfolio manager, has been with us for over 10 years in Hong Kong. He looks at big macro and technical factors. And, you know, we put uh, that horsepower behind it. And so one of the areas that we made a big allocation to is copper, because copper wins regardless of what takes place, either stronger economy, you know, you're going to have more copper tubing around the world, or on the EV side, copper is a major component of EV. So it was almost a can't miss commodity. So we bought a fair amount, like a lot, US-based largest copper uh, miner in the world. And we bought that last year when it was high yield and most recently got upgraded to investment grade. Danny was early on in terms of the commodity super cycle and energy. And this thing's going to last a long time, a lot longer than people think. A couple of years ago, we took that opportunity as bonds sold off right before the, you know, the kind of super cycle started. We know rates have risen. This is a story not only for 2022, but it unfolded last year. And one may think, oh, with a rising rate, I think investors just look at the interest rate risk. But in a rising rate environment, as you alluded to, Dan, you can substitute some of that interest rate risk for credit risk. And I think 2022 is going to be a very similar story where, yes, rates are going to increase, but we can still drive a positive return in that environment by doing. And I think, Tom, it was you that said the flexibility of the mandate. That is important. We're getting a lot more questions where it's that passive versus active discussion, right? So right now we're hearing some of our clients saying what about a passive floating rate etf or what about a passive something tips related what are the pitfalls or the dangers that investors may not be aware of of you know what allocating a dedicated sleeve to a passive floating rate etf i'll just give two points Uh, number one is sometimes um they'll broad brush and own everything uh Number two, there could be some liquidity concerns by owning everything, whether it be in tips or in, you know, the floating rate side. 
And we always have to look at it as far as scale. Um, some of the tips ideas are very good, but when you look at the scale of a product for us to get into uh, and time it right and then get the size right, the liquidity in, the, in that market is not as great. So uh, it may be better for smaller people, but sometimes to, even to get out at the smaller pieces, you may not have that liquidity. So we have to understand that the tips probably to go a large and, and, and to do that right, probably not for us. On the bank loan side, again, if you basically broad brush and buy all the bank loans, well, there's going to be some that you're not going to like and they're going to default or they're going to have problems. We pick and choose our own and Tommy and the team has done a fantastic job of doing that. So what we think makes sense. Yes, could you employ those strategies? Yes, but I think you want to make sure that you know what you own because some of them won't work and some of them will have some problems. We can pick the ones that will work because we're agnostic to indices. Now, going passive in fixed income, you're going to have a longer duration, so you're going to have more interest rate risk. Going to a multi-sector product like ours that could be flexible and have more of an average duration, more toward the three to four, you're going to have more protection there. Now, we look at two things, ways to protect against higher rates. We call that direct ways. In the direct ways is we can take duration down. We can use fixed or floating pay securities, whether it be mortgages, loans, et cetera. Okay, we can use financial futures from the short side. Okay, and then there may be some currency element that we can offset. Indirect ways, as Tommy highlighted, hard to find, but I think we found some that we can use a credit story to thwart the duration because the credit story can offset the duration story. So if we find that, and we've done that a number of times over the past, you know, 16 years, 17 years since we've been up in Canada, uh, to figure out that story can offset a duration move. And I think by doing that right now, it's giving us those opportunities to go find those. You're not gonna have those in specific indice products. They may have some and they may not. Or, the, or the, you know, we're gonna overweight those to make sense and that really could help us thwart indirectly on the duration side. So direct and indirect, very important how to play the duration on a higher rate profile. Hey, Makai, can I just add something to what Danny already talked about? Sorry, Tommy, no, it's just a one, uh, one word. <laughs> Joking, of course. Oh, so make it 60 seconds. <laughs> um, I think it's important in addition to what Danny said, and I think this is why we've seen an increase from institutional investors lately to come to us for our strategy. They, you know, quite frankly, the the uh, institutional mandates were relatively slow 12 months ago because everybody's making money wherever you look. Now, as the environment gets tougher, rates going up, they can't do passive and fixed income. There's a reason why large sovereign wealth funds, we have institutional clients in Canada, US, Middle East, Europe, Asia, they use us, not passive ETFs, doing uh, for their fixed income allocation. And the simple reason is we do stuff that they can't replicate, even despite the fact that they're huge. So I think that's a that speaks volumes for our strategy versus passive. That's a great point. And Tommy, just to add on to that, I think it's also important the way institutional investors and pension um, funds look at your strategy is that core bond solution. It's not a, a uh, you know, explore. It's not a satellite. It's not a, a really yield enhancer or return enhancer. It's a core bond strategy to mitigate volatility. And I think it's important to help people see that. 
Yeah, and the other big difference, Kev, too, is the time horizon, right? For these institutional big picture players, they're not looking at things from one-year return perspective, right? They're looking at it three, five, ten years. And I think that's, and we'll get more into this, that as a retail investor, I know returns last year were challenging in fixed income. Outside of high yield and floating rate, everything else was negative. This solution was actually flat, so it did what it was supposed to do. And they're extrapolating those forward and that's not the, you can't be looking at this asset class as a one-year time horizon it has to be much longer than that well mark and it's interesting you say that because if you go back and look at last two years of fixed income uh, you know if you looked at your statement end of 2020 and looked at the best performing fixed income funds you would have overloaded on long duration government debt treasuries safe haven asset classes and in 2021, you would have got killed. Your returns would have been crazy negative. End of 2021, you know, high yield, high risk credit did best. So 2022, let me load up on that. There's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror, right? We got to look forward and, and we can't be looking at the, the backwards and saying what's the best performing fixing an asset class to, to invest in going forward and identify the landscape. I'm going to bring it back because you mentioned Kisu. I think it's really important for our listeners to remember this and, and be reminded of this if they don't know already. But just the size of the team, the amount of access you have, not only within the team, but outside within Manulife, analysts in the emerging markets and in Asia. And perhaps you can talk briefly about Kisu's role. And But let's talk about the opportunities in emerging markets. People think that's a risky area, but in fixed income, it actually can be very, very attractive to add to a portfolio. Yeah, I'll start out and then hand it off to Danny. Just the way of background, so everybody's familiar with all the players. Danny's the team leader. He's been on the strategy since uh, uh, November of 2005. So long, very long tenured person on the team. Longest tenured person in uh, Canada, even though he's 29. And <laughs> our team has been together. The four senior portfolio managers have been together for over 10 years. So again, uh, I've been with Danny since 2009. Keith has been with us since 2010. Chris Chapman is based in uh, Boston now. He was in London, also been with us for 10 years. A very cohesive team. We have 12 people total on our team with uh, one person in London. And then we have two people in Hong Kong, uh, including Kisu and the rest here in, in the Boston office. From a global standpoint, in terms of all the resources that we be, uh, come to bear, we have research analysts across the globe. I think one of our competitive uh, advantages is we have over 100 analysts throughout Asia in 12 offices in 10 countries and territories, um, 60 on the on the fixed income side and 40 on the equity side. And we have regular meetings with our colleagues out there. Before COVID, we were going out there on a quarterly basis, and we'll probably get back to that later on this year, I would imagine. So again, this is a product that's managed 24 hours a day, six days a week. Kisu leads it off on Sunday um, in New Zealand, and then we manage it until Friday, and we have one day off on, on Saturday. But everybody loves what they do. We have all, of, all the resources that we need at Manulife to come up with the ideas. And turning to emerging markets, yeah, I think emerging markets, Danny and I and Chris and Kisu have identified this as emerging markets are probably going to be a place to head sometime uh, later this year. Uh, there's places in the globe that are actually cutting rates and have different economic cycles. One of our favorite countries is Indonesia. 
uh, just a way of reference, a three-year Indonesian bond is yielding 4.83% today. Again, that's 4.83% in Indonesia. The kicker here, Danny was in charge of the forward FX desk at Morgan Stanley before joining Manulife. So we have expertise on currency management. Kisu worked with Danny. So again, we can buy the local debt and manage the currency. I know a lot of our competitors say, oh, you guys are nothing but a currency fund. That that's couldn't be further from the truth because you look at our volatility numbers, they're extremely low versus the people that are throwing stones at our at our house. So with that, I'll throw it to Danny. With Kisu, I think what's what's interesting is Kisu goes over sort of every month, all the technicals of all the markets, whether it be commodity markets, equity markets, bond markets, currency markets, and gives the, it gives color on what the technicals are. In addition to that, Kisu, like myself and Tommy and the guys and Chris Chapman and Chucky, we're talking to the street to get market information of where positions are, where the, where the fracture points could be if rates move up, down, left, right, political situation. We're paying attention to that. So again, it, it basically, as Tommy said, it is this 24-hour you know, surveillance, right? I think that the key thing for us is we have the flexibility to avoid markets, smaller markets that we can't get in and out of. So, you know, you sort of like, even though we like Vietnam, we can't really buy bonds there. It take two months to buy maybe a million bonds. We can't do that. But I think avoiding some of those markets can be just as good as owning some of the markets. So we want to make sure that we protect there so there's no surprise. South Africa, Turkey, Ukraine, Russia right now are off the table. We've been there, but right now we think there's too much volatility and we don't have an edge. So when we don't have an edge, we sort of avoid those markets. So we'll try, like Tommy said, there will be some opportunities probably in the second half of the year after the volatility of the rate moves you know, filter through all the markets. And I think they'll, we have the people there that we can take advantage of some of those opportunities. So we're pretty excited on the EM side in the future. When Tommy was going through that, two things stuck out to me. The Indonesian example, one might think, oh my goodness, much more riskier, but actually it could be further from the truth in terms of credit quality. Braided by the S&Ps of the world, the Moody's of the world, their credit quality is on par with developed markets. I would argue the fundamentals are better in that part of the world. The Government balance sheets are in a much better position, especially after COVID. So when you think Indonesia or some of these countries, it's actually the credit quality is a lot better than one would think. And the whole flexibility aspect, you couldn't be, for, like, it's so true. We're worried about rates rising in North America, which they are, but that's not the case globally. You look at China, for example, I think it was this past week, they're cutting. So yes, Interest rates are rising here, but how do you mitigate that interest rate risk? You can also go other parts of the world where maybe they're not or they're actually cutting rates. Yeah, China government bonds have been a great place to be. The currency has been absolutely very, very stable to strengthening. In addition to you got a 3.2%, now it's 2.8% yield on the 10 year. So you had some capital appreciation plus a currency gain, which could have been 6 7%. In a you know a higher quality asset, even though you're in a volatile credit situation in in China, but the the government bonds are pretty safe and they've been included in all the indices. So there's places for us to go, as you said. China government bonds and China property. Likewise, in Indonesia, you know one of the big beneficiaries of um, the COVID crisis is this idea of the U.S. and Canadian companies re uh, redoing their supply chains 
out of China to places like Indonesia, to places like Malaysia, Vietnam. They're huge winners of the COVID crisis. And down the road, when those markets like Vietnam grow, we, we may have a position. We have offices there, but you know, right now it's still too small. But so, Kev, if I could summarize, and then maybe we move to portfolio positioning. So what I'm hearing is essentially that inflation expectations are likely to come down, but remain above pre-COVID levels. As a result, the global economy is still on solid footing. Uh, have we peaked in terms of global growth and global earnings? Yeah, likely last year, but still a robust backdrop going forward. And rates are likely to increase in developed markets. You guys run a lot of mandates, run a lot of money. Now let's go into positioning. Okay, Tommy, I'll let you start off on the credit side. Yeah, so where we see opportunities, and you know, the nice thing about this current environment, I talked about substituting credit risk for interest rate risk. Danny will talk about that a little bit more. Is again, diversification in this market is key. The last couple of years, you basically bought the crappiest companies. We had a huge easy monetary policy. We had helicopter money coming in from the from the governments. That's all changing here in this this year. So what you want to get to is security selection in each of these different verticals that we can invest in. So investment grade, where you want to be investment grade, sell triple A, buy triple B. We want to own Boeing as it goes up in, in credit quality as they recover from the max A, high yield. You want to be in double B's, very high quality, high yield as they get upgraded to investment grade. Avoid the triple C's. Uh, there's opportunities on individual basis on convertible bonds, and you know we we're taking advantage of that. Preferred shares, both on the utility side and bank side, that's terrific area. Again, you have to know what you're doing in terms of the utilities and the banks there. We're now, in, over the last couple months, we've been in AT1s, which are subordinated bank paper in Europe. Again, I don't think a lot of folks in Canada have access to that. The banking system in, the United, in Europe has finally recovered. They used to be all bankrupt. Now they're solvent. So we're taking advantage of those opportunities. That's just a, a couple examples besides we're going to be going into EM corporate credit later on this year and leveraging our extensive Manulife network of offices. I'll just make one quick point on the farm bonds, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, Canada governments. And then when you look at it, Sweden and Norway, there could be some plays there because rates have gone up there. And there's some, you know, commensurate, you know, high quality insulation there as we, you know, dip down in some of the credit situations. So I think there's opportunity there. Some of the structured products, ABS, CMBS, we will venture out into those as we see value. Tommy and the team will, will figure out that. So there could be some plays later this year, together with some of the EM situations. If we go into credit EM, the dollar-based bonds may have better liquidity than some of the locals. So that might be better place for us to go to over time. So uh, guys, just uh, broad weights, um, high yield exposure, including floating rate or, or split them between the two? Yeah, so uh, bank loans right now, floating rate um, is right around 9%, and that's going to incrementally go up a little bit more. Um, and then we're t using the proceeds from uh, um, high yield to fund those purchases. Emerging market exposure right now? 
I'll give you a range because uh, it changes. Of course. Um, probably between 11 and 15%. Could that gravitate a little bit higher toward the 18% down the road? Yes. And that could be in two ways. One, it could be in some sovereigns with local currency, or two, it could be in, as Tommy Chappie and the team identify, some credit situations in bigger deals, but dollar based, as we say, you know, hard currency uh, with some credit potential after we get some work done by our Asia colleagues. I think Tommy mentioned uh, your your ability to hedge currency. Everyone loves your view, views on, on CAD-USD. Can you can give us our, our, your target right now, CAD-USD? Sure. We think Canada right now is around 80 cents, you know, 125, give or take. Uh, we think it could strengthen to 120, which would be 83.30. Uh, could it go through that? Yes. I think if we get a sense that the, the central bank, you know, the BOC says, that you know maybe we have to pull the trigger a little bit more and the economy is growing with the influx of 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 the immigration policy together with the stable to higher oil uh, which should structurally be positive all those are positive for canada there's one piece that we're trying to figure out from a political standpoint it's the second round of financing for some of the tech companies which have always gone down to the us away from canada after maybe the budget, there may be something in the Canadian budget coming up in April that could get some of that money to stay in Canada to give incentives for second round financing. That all should be should be positive for the currency. Now, that's against the dollar. So now let's look at against other currencies. We do think that Canada has outperformed against the euro and will outperform against sterling. But again, there's going to be times that we're going to be tactical on those. Same with Australia and New Zealand. Okay, so predominantly right now, we're hedged back to Canada on most of those, with the exception of some EM countries. Eventually, we'll unwind some of that and trade those tactically, Canada relative to the G10 and some of the other currencies. And then the dollar, though, our view is to stay predominantly hedged because we really think we're protecting on those dollar assets by having that hedge on. Yeah, equities outperform over long term. Why not just own equities. Uh, people are, are are saying, you know, fixed income is, is you know, is dead. dead. Yeah, it's going to, you know, lack of a better term, you know, it. why why own it? Um, you know, how do you guys uh, approach that subject? Well, I, I think when we look at, you know, pension plans, et cetera, you know, they, some of them, you know, will have fixed income. We look at people's portfolio, not, they all don't want to have 100% risk in equities. So you're going to have some as a buffer, or you're just going to be in a, a balanced product where you're always going to have a part, whether it be 30%, 20%, 40%. So it serves a purpose. Right now with lower rates, it's not as exciting as it was probably five to seven years ago where you're getting returns that were pretty decent, but it, it serves a purpose and we'll go through that over cycles. So in the short run, you could say, maybe I should avoid it, but Usually you avoid it the wrong time, so you should probably stick with it and uh, to give you that insulation and downside protection. And if we if we do our job right, we can actually add some value. So hopefully we'll make people happier than last year. Yeah, the aspect of fixed income of being that umbrella in the event that it rains has not changed, right? And the challenge, it's not a challenge, but the di- market dynamic over the past couple of years is it's been sunny, really sunny, really warm. And we haven't had to have that umbrella, but just like any cycle, there's always a role for fixed income and equities. And I think the role of fixed income is gonna become much stronger in the next couple of years than what it maybe would have been last year.
Lachlan, you want to go to a quick um, speed round? We haven't, we haven't had beers with the boys in a long time. It's because of COVID. Uh, but they're very interesting individuals. But the whole point of this is to get to know our, uh, our portfolio managers on a more personal level. So we're obviously coming through COVID. Uh, is there anything that either of you have learned about yourself that you weren't aware of uh, pre-COVID? All right, I'll, I'll start first. Um, uh, I, what I learned, well, I've, I've, I've always had patience, but I learned that I had to have more patience <laughs> because I, I found that, uh, you know, is my, my better half to make sure that my better half is now that I'm around is I, I noticed that, you know, I can keep her very happy when I'm around by doing things for her. So walking the dog, getting the <laughs> coffee, doing all this stuff. I think that worked out for me. So I learned that I have to do a little more of that. I think that one thing that we did learn is the, the wives for us put up with a lot of, you know, travel, a lot of aggravation at night on calls and everything. And we have to, we have to actually uh, be a lot nicer to them. That's what I think I learned. And I think I've done that. So hopefully I have a happy wife that makes my, my job a little easier. I hope my wife doesn't listen to this and get ideas for me. <laughs> How about you, Tommy? Anything you learned about yourself, Tommy? I think Danny's answer was pretty good. My wife wants me to start traveling again. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's your response. All right, all right, Tommy. I I got one for you then. An easy one. I like I like um, these ones. You know, if you if you had to give up one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? So between pizza and burgers, um, which one would you give up for the rest oh, of your life? Pizza. Pizza. Eh? Hamburgers with lots of Wisconsin cheese on it, right? That's right. A lot of cheddar. Back in back in Wisconsin, we do butter burgers. So you put some <laughs> butter on the burger and the cheese. Oh wow. That's why the cholesterol levels in the Midwest are a lot higher than the rest of the country. <laughs> you, you guys have an important matchup if you follow in the NFL. Kev's a 49er fan. Tommy is obviously a Packer fan. Any, any bets between the two of you? People listening, all the financial advisors to be listening to uh, sign on to Kevin Headland's Facebook page. <laughs> and he, he will be giving like... <laughs> Second to second play by play, it would be much better than Jim Nance and Tony Romo. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! Nothing wrong with Tony Romo. <laughs> I'm gonna live tweet the uh, the the game, uh, you know, as as the Packers try and cheat. But the the outcome of the game will be decided before this podcast is probably um, uh, ready. So uh, and yeah. I'll be watching, but I'm gonna stay neutral so none of you guys kill me. But I'll be watching this year. We were not involved anymore. In the past. <laughs> and thank goodness for that. <laughs> As a cowboy fan, so I get also no love either. So, Pats fans are Brady fans now, so they're all cheering for Tampa Bay. Yeah. Is there any uh, lasting, I guess, lo- lasting words you want to leave with the audience before we sign off? I'll say one. I think the key thing is if you're in risky assets, you should know what you own. Uh, so you should have a um, go over the holdings so you understand if you're going to take that incremental risk, what do you own? What is the percentages of that in the product? Because if they dislocate, you don't want to be have, having a surprise. So I would say know what you own if you're going to go into those risky asset products. That's what I think one of the key things you should do as a retail investor. Yeah, just add to that, I think Danny's is spot on. I just would say that we're in an unprecedented period of time where we've never had the central banks embark on the policies that they have done over the last 10 years and and you know add to that fiscal policy. So this unwinding 
there's not a previous template for this. So it's going to be, I think that plays into our playbook of being extremely well diversified. But I think, as Danny said, know what you own. It's not going to be easy. We got to, we actually have to do our job even, you know, it's, it's tougher, but I, hopefully we can get through this. You know, Tom, I think you really nailed it on the head there. I, I think the idea of being diversified, but flexible. And, and I like to say, you know, you're the biggest sandbox to play in. You guys can go anywhere you need to, to A, protect the portfolio or B, generate returns. And I think that really affords you a, a luxury that other managers don't have um, and to have the expertise and the access to uh, the, the investment professionals around the world to make your job a little bit easier in this difficult environment. Well, I just want to close it off there. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, I look forward to the next one. I look forward to uh, getting to Boston and sitting down with you guys again um, and, and breaking bread and having dinner and, and a couple of uh, cocktails, hopefully. So thanks again. Thanks, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice. It does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Any Manulife funds mentioned are available to Canadian investors only. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, Know Your Client, Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements and is intended for Canadian advisors.